I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. People are always telling you what to think about Shakespeare. So William Shakespeare wrote a few dozen plays about 400 years ago, And ever since, people have been performing those plays, and writing about those plays, and arguing about those plays, till it's like a metric ton of opinions. And then other people have had opinions about their opinions, and on and on and on and on, up to you. So it can sometimes seem like reading or watching Shakespeare's plays is like that game Telephone we used to play in kindergarten, you know, where you'd start out with a phrase, and then you'd whisper it to your neighbor, and then he'd whisper it to his neighbor, and she'd whisper it to her neighbor, and on and on, till you got to the end of the line, and the phrase had transformed from the beginning to the end, and we all laughed hilariously. Anyway, that's how I see Shakespeare's plays. You know, we start out with some guy writing some words down on paper in 1590-whatever in London, England, and hands them off to some actors... And there have been so many handoffs since then that the words are almost unrecognizable now, because that's 400 years of people whispering to their neighbors, only if their neighbors also had a violent disagreement with them about what those words meant. And along the way, Shakespeare also became important, incredibly culturally important, like second only to the Bible important, especially in England and America, but also in Germany and Russia and Japan. And so that importance is a whole other layer to get through. And quite apart from what we did to Shakespeare over the course of 400 years, 400 years also passed. The language changed. The culture changed. Just think about all the things in our television shows that will make no sense in the year 2400. That change over time is not a small layer to get through either. You know, it can be really painful to read and watch Shakespeare at times, even if you know it well and have studied it for years, which most people haven't, because there's so many layers built around it that it becomes distant. And one of those layers is that you're supposed to love it. Well, what if you don't love these plays? What if you don't like them? What if they sound like fakey gibberish, or a bunch of people in tights on stage feel like they have nothing to do with you, or somebody makes you read them for a class, and you're still supposed to like them? How do you get through that layer? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the emperor has no clothes, though not every moment of every play is the greatest thing humans have ever written down. I like a lot of the plays fine. Some of them, some of them I love. I think a lot of Shakespeare's writing is awesome, but uh, the, the analogy I use, I compare it to dropping a piece of jewelry into the ocean by accident. Say it belonged to your grandma, and she got it from some Hungarian prince she fooled around with 80 years ago. Anyway, so it slips off your finger while you're on a cruise in the Bahamas, and this beautiful thing, this gem, floats down to the bottom of the ocean, where there's no light, and over the next, say, 400 years, minerals start to build up over that ring, slowly at first, so you can still see the ring shining underneath, or, you know, you could if you had a flashlight and lived on the bottom of the ocean. Anyway, finally, the minerals build up so much that even the shape of the original ring is covered up, and it just looks like another rock. If a diver picked it up, they might not even know what it was. If they did, They'd have to carefully dissolve and chip away all that buildup. And after all that, the ring might not even be in usable shape still. So uh, it turns out this process is called concretion. Found that out, looked it up. Uh, It's the best analogy I have for why Shakespeare's plays can be such a challenge to read and watch today. We don't get them clean. 
You know, we get them covered in 400 years of cultural and linguistic changes. Every time a character talks in one of these plays, it can sound like 400 years of people are talking their opinions at you at once. And that kind of covers up what all the characters are actually saying. So, that's where clear Shakespeare comes in. I have personally spent the better part of the last 20 years of my life working at and thinking about how to strip away all that concretion from Shakespeare's plays. Some of it might, you know, be a fool's errand, because those 400 years of people are very loud, and sometimes old cultural artifacts just outlive their ability to communicate. But I don't know. I think there really is great beauty in there. I don't think something lasts this long without having real value. I think these plays were weird, and they were original when they were written, and I think that weirdness and originality shouldn't go away just because they went all establishment and a bunch of famous people had opinions about them. So what I want to do with this podcast is to get you closer to the words, because ultimately that's all these plays are. They're the same words that, well, they're, they're mostly the same words anyway. They're the same words that Shakespeare wrote down 400 years ago. Everything that's built up around them, that's, that's commentary. That's an idea people have laid on top of those words. And some of what they've said is very useful, but that's like step two or step three or 17 to understanding the plays. For this podcast, um, I want you to follow along with me. And that means we both have the play in front of us. We're going to be looking at the same words, and I'm going to read them out loud. And every time I feel like there's something getting in the way of communication, I'm going to stop and try to clear it away for you. So if there's a word that needs defining or a word whose meaning has changed, I'll interpret that. If the phrase has gotten so famous that it's hard to remember the meaning in the context of the original play in the first place, I'll try to bring out that original meaning. Um, if there's wordplay or a rhythmic trick or some other aspect of the sound of the language, I'll let you know about it. If there's a cultural reference that was awesome in 1602, but not so much now, I'll let you know about it. If there's something about character or staging that isn't obvious just from the text alone, I'll try to bring that up. Basically, I want you to have enough information so that you can make up your own mind about what you're reading. I'll let you know if I have a strong opinion about a point, but, you know, if what I'm saying sounds like garbage, stop the playback and yell at me, or yell at me while I'm talking. At least your interpretation is going to be based on the words and not on this hearsay or general themes or plot summaries that usually make up how we talk about Shakespeare now. I, I don't want to be just another person telling you what to think about Shakespeare, because there's 400 years of those guys. So, uh, how is clear Shakespeare different from all the other Shakespeare aid thingies out there? Right, because the landscape is littered with tools that are supposed to make Shakespeare no problem and easy and for everyone. Well, I'm not going to pretend to do that. I don't think Shakespeare is easy. I think his plays were a challenge even back when they were written. That's why he's good. I know there are, for instance, um, books that translate, quote-unquote, the lines on a facing page. Okay, fine. But most of these translations aren't very good. They're just kind of vaguer and sometimes misunderstood versions of the language. You know, if you translate, she doth teach the torches to burn bright into she's beautiful, that's kind of missing the point because the image is torch teaching. It's not just the beauty. Uh, there's also books that have little notes that define the hard words. Most editions are like this. Um, I find they don't define all the words you need. Or if they do, they define them sort of confusingly, and they tend not to address word order, which is one of the ways that Shakespeare actually makes his language interesting. And I just find it hard to follow language if you're always looking away from it to find a reference on some facing page or underneath. Uh, there's also plenty of guides that give you plot summaries and theme summaries and some points about language. 
This is sort of useful if you have a test tomorrow, but only in the sense that you'll get a C instead of a D. And anyway, plot is kind of the least interesting part about Shakespeare. You know, he didn't make up any of his plots. They're all borrowed. And they're not really amazing plots in the first place, frankly. As for themes, well, that's the vaguest possible way to talk about what Shakespeare's doing. Uh, here's a theme in Hamlet. Revenge. Congratulations. That doesn't tell me a thing about the guy or his situation or the words he chooses. What does? What he says and why he says it. I know there are some Shakespeare podcasts out there also. Uh, for the most part, they seem to take kind of that same approach. You know, we'll discuss some themes or historical arguments about the play in the most general way possible, mention a few famous lines, the end, come back next week. You know, whenever anyone asserts an idea about a character or scene in Shakespeare's plays, to me, my first question is always, where is that in the text? What words convince you of that? Show me. Prove it. And that's what I want you to be able to do after listening to this podcast, to be able to have an opinion about these plays, an opinion of your own, and to back it up with language. That's one of the reasons this is a podcast instead of a series of brilliant essays on my part. It's so I can speak the words. Now, yes, that's an excuse to show off my amazing acting. Uh, just kidding. There's a kind of nerdy cred to saying all of Shakespeare's words, I know. But really, it comes down to the fact that these are out loud documents. They're written as lines to be spoken aloud by actors to an audience, and it's an extremely language-based theater setting that these are being set in. So anyway, uh, we're going to talk about exactly why that's important for the form of the plays later, but basically, there's a difference between spoken and written language. I don't have to tell you that. Try reading a book out loud sometime, or try transcribing what you say sometime. Shakespeare, by the way, did not envision every high school classroom in America getting assigned paperback versions of his plays to slog through. Now, granted, when he was writing these plays, America was less high schools and more buffalo herds, but still, his plays were mostly published just to boost the popularity of the staged versions, and even then they're in kind of crappy editions in his lifetime. The really pretty copies aren't printed up until their author is dead and rotting away, and, you know, a lot of good it did him then. Anyway, what's important is that I want you to hear how the language sounds, and to notice how it's designed to be acted back and forth by actors, and to do that, you need to hear it out loud. So that's the plan. Clear Shakespeare's going to break each play down into a series of hour-long or so podcasts, and I want you to read along in your edition. Now keep in mind, yours might read a little different from mine, if only because there's kind of a lot of variations in Shakespeare's texts floating around out there. If you want to read along out loud, that's cool too. Uh, just don't get caught or everyone's going to think you're a nerd also. Uh, who is this podcast for? Well, some of you might have been assigned Shakespeare. You know, we can't ignore the fact that people meet Shakespeare for the first time in school, which is almost a guarantee they'll grow up to hate him. I'm lucky that didn't happen to me. That's not how I met him for the first time. So the homework part of it doesn't help, but neither does the speed. Um, reading Hamlet in a week or two, covering it in a few vague 45-minute discussions, gross. And the plays we choose, God, I studied King Lear over a few classes when I was 17 years old. Are you kidding me? Or Julius Caesar for freshmen? You know why we assign that play to kids? To 14-year-olds? Because it has the least sex and dirty jokes of any play Shakespeare wrote. No fooling. That is the only reason. Even in college, let's say you're in a seminar on Shakespeare and you're reading a play in a night or two on your own and you're discussing it in two sessions before you move on to the next one. Is there some reason we need to accomplish Shakespeare by quantity? It's not a race. Why not read two plays a semester and get to know them inside out? That's assuming anybody even reads them. I mean, I personally speaking, I was kind of busy, you know, growing up in college. 
And I think the unfortunate result of reading Shakespeare for the first time in school is that you kind of skim over it. And what you do read sometimes just kind of confuses you. I know a lot of people who still have an extremely negative impression of Shakespeare from their high school experience just because they felt like it was used to make them feel stupid. Well, duh, you weren't given the detailed time to actually read something this difficult. No wonder you hate it. Or sometimes your parents or your class took you to see a production of a Shakespeare play at some well-meaning local theater. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. It's great to see these plays live. At least you did that. Maybe it was even a production of the play you were reading, but you got there, and it was a bunch of people in floppy hats and tights, and they had very slight English accents, and they didn't seem quite like real people. Or maybe it was funny, but just from the, you know, added fart jokes or whatever. The actors would kind of look out at you after saying a famous line, and you would laugh because it seemed like time to laugh, or sigh because it seemed like time to sigh. You know, when I worked at a big, important theater that specialized in Shakespeare, I would hang around in the lobby sometimes after student matinees or during intermissions at regular performances, and I would hear these amazing things. I would hear statements like, I really liked it. I didn't understand anything they were saying, but I really liked it. I, I don't know what that even means. To me, it sounds like, I know I'm supposed to like this. And that's not really cool for something that's designed to entertain people. So I want this podcast to be for people who go to see plays, and maybe even more importantly, for the people who who make the plays. Because if you're playing one of these parts, I want you to follow along with me so you can get better in the play, and make someone in the audience understand it for the first time. I have seen so many directors and actors fake their way through this stuff and get great reviews anyway, that I want to help wipe out that particular disease. No more actors uh, singing their way through Shakespeare or explaining their way through Shakespeare. How about some honest-to-God, moment-to-moment, intention-based acting their way through Shakespeare? That'd be pretty sweet. Who else is this for? Uh, It's also for people who think they know everything about Shakespeare. There's a few of those out there. I sure as hell don't. Every time I go through, I find that I've been oversimplifying something, or glazing over something, or making assumptions. I've known people who have seen Hamlet, I swear to God, 50 different times, and they're spouting the same vague revenge garbage. When I ask them why Hamlet doesn't kill Claudius immediately, or why Claudius can't repent, it's all generalities. Chapter and verse, people! Give me that ocular proof, yo! Look, there's a lot of people whose parents read them Shakespeare when they were in the womb, and then they're raised quiz show style with famous line games, and then they read Tales from Shakespeare, and they probably saw Olivier in person, and they can recite a thousand lines straight without blinking, but that knowledge is a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. It's the theme park version of Shakespeare. I want you to meet that man again for the first time. Come back to the words you've been saying forever and ask yourself what they mean and why he chose those particular words at that particular moment. Unlearn what you learned. Pick up that dog-eared copy you're always bringing to productions and question everything. Anyway, that's the hope. Uh, If you hate it, well, that's your right. Send me an email. The internet is full of opinions, God knows. Be my guest. So that's the why of Clear Shakespeare. Um, I want to spend the rest of this intro episode giving you some information you might need to read all of Shakespeare's plays, which we're about to do. A little background on the man and his world. Now, this is tough. One of my favorite things ever written about Shakespeare is actually one of the first things ever written about him. Uh, It's a poem from the first folio, which is the uh, coffee table book edition of Shakespeare's plays that was published seven years after he died. Not that they had coffee tables then exactly, but anyway... In the introductory poem, 
this playwright named Ben Johnson is writing uh, a poem about the author's picture on the facing page. And he ends by saying this wonderful line, Reader, look not on his picture, but his book, which is kind of amazing. Uh, we tend to do this with all our favorite writers. We read their works through the actions of their lives. We even have a fancy literary term for this, the biographical fallacy. So in the spirit of focusing on the words, I want to give you the information about the man and about his times that helps when it comes to reading the words, because after all, he didn't live now. Dude was born in 1564, which is a long time ago. Okay, so who was Shakespeare? Before we start, I should say this is all going to be a wild oversimplification. If you want to actually dig into this stuff, read James Shapiro and Andrew Gurr and Russ McDonald and Jonathan Bate and all sorts of other good scholar folks. But anyway, let's start with where he arrived. England in 1564. So William Shakespeare is born in this town called Stratford-upon-Avon. It's about 100 miles northwest of London, which, just to give you an idea, is about the distance between New York and Philly, or Chicago and Milwaukee, or San Diego and Long Beach, give or take. That's less than a two-hour drive for us, but if your fastest mode of travel is a horse, that's a few days. Uh, his father, weirdly, makes gloves for a living. Um, by the time his son is born, he's an alderman, which is a pretty important position in local government. His mother is from a pretty prominent family, the Ardens. Shakespeare is one of eight children, um, and he's also part of the first generation of English children that receive a real education. You know, you learn to speak Latin, and you read the classics of Roman literature. His parents' generation, for the most part, is illiterate, uh, and it's a matter of great pride that their children aren't going to be illiterate. So by, by the time Shakespeare is a teenager, his father has fallen onto somewhat hard times, so there's kind of more of an incentive for the kids to make good. Now, when he's 18 years old, Shakespeare all of a sudden marries a woman who's eight years older than him. Why? Well, the reason for this becomes kind of obvious when their daughter is born six months after the wedding. Uh, they go on to have twins two years after that, and that is all we know about the guy for seven more years until he surfaces as an actor and writer in London. How this happens, by the way, nobody knows, really. It is a gap in the story. We don't know what his job is. We don't know how he gets to London, how he trains as an actor or a writer, nothing. We just know that by 1594, he's a part owner and a leading playwright with this theater company called The Lord Chamberlain's Men. We'll get back to that in a second. But first, a little more about the, the country he's born into, England. Now, politically speaking, the person on the throne when Shakespeare's born is Queen Elizabeth I, the daughter of Henry VIII. Maybe you've heard of her. Um, but in the years before Shakespeare's birth, English politics are completely insane. Uh, so Henry VIII dies in 1547, and the next 11 years are a total minefield. Uh, Henry's son, Edward, becomes king, and he strengthens these Protestant reforms his father began, you know, rejecting the Pope, knocking down churches, killing and exiling monks. But Edward dies after only six years as king, and after this long scuffle for the throne, his half-sister Mary takes over. And she, by contrast, is a very strong Catholic, and she overturns everything her father and half-brother made. But she then dies after only five years in office, and there's another scuffle for the throne, and her half-sister Elizabeth takes charge. And Elizabeth is a Protestant again, so she turns everything back one more time. God, imagine living in England through these years, like Shakespeare's parents and their generation had. You're just switching back and forth between Christian sects every few years, never knowing what you're supposed to be today. It must have been totally exhausting. Um, and because Elizabeth restores Protestantism, by the way, she becomes extremely unpopular with Catholic Europe. Um, Mary's widower husband is the King of Spain, which is the most powerful country in Europe. It's the home of the Spanish Inquisition, also a famous institution. 
Um, and he spends most of his reign trying to assassinate Elizabeth and sort of forcibly reconvert her country to Catholicism. And this all culminates with this famous incident in 1588 when he sends an immense invasion fleet of ships, the so-called Spanish Armada, to conquer England. And the only way the disaster is averted is this lucky weather and good strategy saves England. By the way, women in England at this time were also something of a lower class of person, and they have rights far below men. And everyone starts out pretty uncomfortable with having a woman lead them, especially after how well things went with big sister Mary. So to maintain her power, she never marries, and she sort of creates this persona. Um, it's usually referred to as Gloriana, this image of a virgin queen, this figure who's almost like a goddess to her people. And she sort of portrays herself as married to her country instead of a husband. Now, she's the towering figure of the time that Shakespeare is born into. Shakespeare's company almost certainly performed on command at her court on many occasions. So London, after the defeat of the Spanish Armada, was an amazing place to live, and it's quickly becoming a world center for trade and business, all kinds, and so people flock to this city from the countryside, and they swell the population very quickly. The image they like to use for England at this time is of a sort of regular-sized body with a giant, wobbly head on top, swollen up like a balloon. Um, that was London. Um, this population explosion in London means that the streets are always busy, and suddenly crime and disease are becoming major issues. It also, by the way, meant that all these new city dwellers needed things to do in their leisure time. So a massive entertainment industry grows up on the outskirts of London, you know, the bad parts of town. And this includes taverns, it includes firing ranges, uh, public execution grounds, animal fighting pits where they would fight chickens or dogs or even bears, uh, brothels, and of course, theaters. And if you're going to compete with the violence and sex and drinking and bear fights, you'd better have an entertainment form that's as exciting as they are. So Shakespeare's early plays have a lot of that same bear-fighty sort of energy. Plays like The Comedy of Errors, and The Taming of the Shrew, and Titus Andronicus, and this four-play cycle about the Wars of the Roses. Now, some of these plays are collaborations with other playwrights. Yeah, Shakespeare collaborated. Who knew? Um, that's how you learn to write plays, by the way. Some more experienced playwright co-wrote with you. Why? Well, because new playwrights and plays are always in demand. So this is how you develop the new writers. And there's a competition among a few different theaters for audiences, and they need new material all the time. This was an incredibly commercial enterprise. Yet yeah, Shakespeare is an actor and writer for this company, but he's also what they call a sharer, which means that he shares in the profits if the company did well. And their patron is the Lord Chamberlain. That's why they're called the Lord Chamberlain's men. He's sort of the one who organized the Queen's household. Uh, he also happened to be her cousin. His mom was the so-called other Bolen girl. Um, so they're performing for her court regularly, and they're building up some prestige that way. Mostly, though, they're performing during the afternoons for this restless and growing crowd looking to be entertained out there. And they're largely based at two theaters, one called, you guessed it, The Theater. And once their lease runs out on that, at another theater called The Curtain. So this is this wild world of competing for audiences with the next hot, new, exciting thing. But increasingly, the most exciting thing in London is actually language. The population's learning how to read, and so this publishing industry is growing up. A poet and playwright become viable professions, uh, and rich people are willing to sponsor writers for their work, and theater companies are willing to hire playwrights to write new plays. And the language is changing in these incredibly exciting new ways. You know, people will always say, oh, Shakespeare's in Old English, I don't understand him. No not Old English, not Middle English even. It is Modern English. Now, it's what we call Early Modern English, so it's not exactly ours, but it's awfully close. And Shakespeare's writing in Modern English just as it's kind of hitting its stride. 
Um, and the language is still flexible. It's borrowing words from many other languages. Shakespeare sometimes just makes up new words if the old ones aren't interesting enough for him. He doesn't feel constrained by this tradition that the language must be this particular way because there is no tradition. Language can kind of be anything at this time. And the plays Shakespeare is starting to write in the mid-1590s are language-drunk plays. They're, they're borderline show-off works. It's plays like Love's Labor's Lost and Romeo and Juliet and A Midsummer Night's Dream and Richard II and his collection of sonnets. And these are all great works of poetry in addition to being great drama. The poetic form most commonly used at this time is what we call iambic pentameter, this famous ten-syllable, unstressed, stressed, metrical line. It goes a little something like da-da, 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 da-da. Um, Chaucer, he used it as early as the 14th century, but when Shakespeare's writing in the late 16th century, it's making kind of a comeback. It's the hot thing. But it also has this sound that's kind of forced and galloping. And Shakespeare and his contemporaries are developing it to the point where it can be used a little more conversationally without losing the poetry. It's to the point where you no longer have to be sort of slavish to the meter. You can live within it. And instead of every line being its own complete thought, thoughts can spill onto the next line. Usually you had to constrain your idea to one verse line, but now it's spilling over into the next one. And it, it sort of became a challenge for these playwrights to write beautiful iambic pentameter that sounded almost like normal human speech. And when Shakespeare started writing for the stage in the late 1580s, stage language still sounded a lot like poetry. Long speeches, a very regular verse, it's written to show off the beauty of the language and the ability of the writer. Someone like Christopher Marlowe is a great example. But Shakespeare began to make a distinction between what was read on a page and what was spoken aloud by a character. So he adjusted characters' voices, and he's chasing drama instead of just formal, beautiful speech. It's only very recently, by the way, that verse plays have become what they call blank, which means unrhymed. Regular verse and rhymes at the end of every line is a very artificial form. Um, so as Shakespeare completes this sort of great poetic stretch in the last years of the 16th century, his language is becoming more and more flexible. So he finishes his long historical epics, and he starts to write these great tragedies that he's sort of very famous for now, and they feature much more sort of chopped up verse and more prose, um, which is to say language that isn't verse. This, by the way, might be a good time to mention that Shakespeare isn't the only person writing plays at this time. Sometimes it can kind of seem that way to us, like the world, the world was without form and void and Shakespeare appeared and lo, it was good. But actually, like all writers, he came from a community. He's responding to other writers. He's challenging them. He's innovating off of them. When he comes onto their scene, it's, it's dominated by people like Thomas Kidd and John Lilly, and especially this guy Christopher Marlowe. A lot of them are university-educated writers, and they're the ones who sort of start to set the forms and the subjects that Shakespeare's going to be playing with in his own work. Shakespeare's early works, by the way, in particular, seem like responses. You can literally go back and forth with Shakespeare and Marlowe's plays in the late 1580s and early 1590s and see them challenging each other, kind of one-upping each other in language and form and subject matter. And then, of course, Marlowe gets stabbed through the eye in 1593, so that sort of puts an end to that rivalry. Um, but this kind of rivalry happens later on, too. In the early 1600s, you start to get people like Ben Jonson, and then Thomas Middleton, and John Webster, and these guys Beaumont and Fletcher. And they're collaborating with Shakespeare, a lot of them. But then they also go write their own stuff, and they challenge him right back. Um, these later plays, by the way, are twisted and energetic and interesting. They're totally different from the Marlowe's of the world, and they push Shakespeare in his own way forward, too. I think it's it's really important to remember that Shakespeare is human, and he's a writer, and that means he goes through the same cycles they all do, which is, you know, upstart challenges establishment, then he becomes establishment, then he gets challenged by the upstarts, and he has to respond. But 
back to the late 1590s. So a few big developments are happening in Shakespeare's world and his work at this time. First, Shakespeare's company has been looking for a permanent home for a while. Um, the lead actor's father had built this theater called The Theater, you may remember it, um, but they couldn't use it because their lease on the land it stood on had run out in 1597. Well, they have a perfect solution. They own the theater, just not the land. So you pick up the theater and you move it off the land. So they show up late at night in December of 1598 and they take it apart piece by piece. And they drag it across the river and they spend the next few months using the same pieces to build this new sort of state-of-the-art home. This new place is three stories tall. It's 100 feet in diameter. It can hold close to 3,000 people sitting and standing. So by the summer of 1599, Shakespeare has a really secure company for his plays. He's got a secure place to perform them, and he's starting to have a pretty secure audience for them. The next big thing that happens is that Queen Elizabeth dies in 1603, and the new ruler, who's this Scottish guy they end up calling King James I, takes Shakespeare's company on as its official patron. So the Lord Chamberlain's men become the King's men, much better title, and they go on to perform twice as often at court then as they do under Elizabeth. A little bit about this company, the King's men, um, the former Lord Chamberlain's men. They're one of many companies vying for the business of all these entertainment-hungry patrons at the time, and this includes weird things like all-children companies. Um, but each company has a sort of stable of actors, although the actors often sort of jump to company to company depending on where the money is. Um, and the King's men had a pretty stable group of shareholders, which is to say actors who got a cut of the box office and didn't move around. And everyone in the company had sort of a kind of part they played. There's the heroic leading man, who was usually this guy Richard Burbage, whose dad owned the company. Um, there was a clown, which is, at least in the second part of Shakespeare's career, this guy named Armin. Uh, there's the old man type. There's the soldier. There's the villain, etc., etc. So everybody kind of specializes. Um, two of these actors are named Hemmings and Condal. And they end up being these incredibly important characters later on because they're the ones who save Shakespeare's plays by gathering them into a book after he dies. There's also this guy named Thomas Pope, who I will only mention here because due to some quirks of early spelling conventions, his name is usually spelled Thomas Poop. And I think that's hilarious. Anyway, so there were also um, at least two boys in the company to play the female characters because they didn't allow women on stage in England. Hmm. So yeah, uh, Juliet and Cleopatra and Rosalind and Ophelia, these great parts, are all originally played by like 13-year-old boys. Weird, right? Um, and Shakespeare and his other playwrights are writing these parts specifically for these individual actors. So you can kind of track types going through Shakespeare's plays. Um, it's rare that a, a cast is going to be much larger than 15, because that's about the size of the company. So there's almost certainly actors playing multiple parts, and one way to figure out who doubles what is just who's not on stage together at the same time. The coolest one of these is one from King Lear, where somebody noticed that Cordelia and the Fool are never on stage at the same time. So there's this theory that maybe that was the same. I don't know. I don't necessarily buy it, but you get the idea. And they rarely played the same play twice in a week. Um, and they kept a lot of these plays in repertory at the same time, sometimes 40 of them at the time. And they're adding plays as often as they could, most likely one every two weeks or so. This is an audience that is ravenous for new material. Rehearsals, by the way, are not the multi-week affair we have today. No, actors learn their parts, they walk through the play once if they were lucky, and then they go on. There's no director. And they also, unlike us, they don't receive the whole script. No, they, they got a scroll with just their lines on it and the last few words from the other actors to cue them. And I think this is, by the way, incredibly important for following Shakespeare's language. Shakespeare's writing tends to bounce from character to character. This isn't about dueling speeches, I stand over there, you stand over there. In order to remember all your lines, you need a cue from someone else. 
This is why Shakespeare's lines, I think, so often sort of pick up on a word in a previous character's line to pun on or get angry at. It's a prompt, literally. All that wordplay is partly a memorizing trick. It's the only way you can keep 40 plays in your head at once. And maybe the most important thing to know about Shakespeare's theater, at least in the first part of his career, is that it features little to no scenery. The actors were acting on a raised platform with a bench or two. There's two entrances, one upstage left, one upstage right. There's a balcony above. There's what they call a discovery space between the entrances where you could pull a curtain back to reveal another scene. But there is no other scenery to speak of, and that's why the language is so packed with detail. You know, you get things like, look where the sun rises and its rosy fingers, etc., etc. Or here we are in France and its rosy fingers or whatever. This is why Shakespeare can be a little strange in movies, by the way. Uh, they can just show the sun rising or France francing. So the scenes are mostly short and designed to flow easily into each other. So one group says its last line and exits at one door, and the next group is entering at the other door saying its first line at the same time. They had some pretty impressive props, you know, weapons, uh, decapitated heads, uh, rocks, crowns, that sort of thing. But nothing so large you couldn't just pick it up and whisk it off stage easily. The costumes, for the most part, were contemporary. Um, this was important because clothing is the single greatest marker of status in Shakespeare's time. So the way an actor dressed told the audience a tremendous amount about who they were before they spoke a word. In fact, it would have been illegal for the actors to wear the clothes of upper-class lords or kings anywhere but on stage. Costumes could also denote a character's occupation, and the color could indicate a personality type. Many of these costumes, by the way, are purchased from nobles who were done with them. They're hand-me-downs. The weirdest thing is that the only picture we have of costumes from a Shakespeare play is this sketch of a performance of Titus Andronicus, and it is incredibly strange. Titus is dressed in a Roman armor uh, and toga, but the other characters seem to be dressed as Elizabethan-era soldiers or noblewomen. Uh, plays you know, that are set in the 14th century or in foreign countries, they also apparently just featured contemporary English costumes. So the next time somebody asks you to perform a play with original-style Shakespeare costumes, you can ask them what exactly they mean by that. Now, here's an, another big change. After 1608, Shakespeare's company adds a new space. Uh, it's an indoor hall called the Blackfriars, which is in downtown London, as opposed to the, the Globe, which was on the outskirts of London. Now, the, the Globe, the place they had built across the river, was an outdoor theater, which means you can only perform there in the warmer months. Perhaps you've been to London in January. When they build the Blackfriars, it's possible to perform year-round. And instead of the mix of classes who pay different prices for different seating at the Globe, you could just charge one higher price and invite just the upper classes, which equals profit! Um, it also means you could do a lot more with stage technology, which means a little more scenery and sort of magical stage effects like flying or gods. So Shakespeare's late career plays that were written, at least partly for the Blackfriars, have a few more tricks. They tend to visit a few more locations, a little more magic involved. Um, at this point in his career, he's collaborating more with younger playwrights, just like he did with older playwrights when he was young. And he's writing these sort of stranger and much more freeform plays. Now, the verse rhythm is all over the place. It's much less regular than the earlier plays. And I find the subject matter is sort of odder and somehow more optimistic. Now, Shakespeare virtually retires after 1611. He spends a lot more time at home in Stratford. He gets more involved in business and town life and family. And he dies in 1616. And when he died, he had written something like uh, 37 or 38 plays. And there's a few really surprising things about them. One is that almost none of the plots were original. Uh, he got them from popular novels of the time, from classical history, from mythology, from fables. 
he's kind of a first-class rip-off artist. He chooses whatever genre is popular at the time, but then he finds his own unique twist or jump-off on the material. This is a time before copyright, so you can just steal plots and even pull bits of language without it being thought of as stealing. Now, another surprising thing is that there aren't a ton of references to contemporary history or culture in his plays. Some, but not as many as a lot of other playwrights. Um, instead, Shakespeare usually prefers to kind of let his plays discuss more universal themes and characters. Now, look, there's plenty of slang and contemporary references in the plays, but whereas someone like Ben Jonson, his rival, throws in lots of references that must have been awesome at the time but have since dated pretty badly, Shakespeare's tends to hold up pretty well. Another thing is that some of Shakespeare's plays are published in his lifetime, but he's not writing for publication. Uh, many of the editions that come out uh, in his lifetime are pirated or sort of sloppy, and the, the quote-unquote official version doesn't come out until Shakespeare's been dead for seven years. So he's writing stage language, not page language. It's why it's very difficult to know what the original texts look like. You know, there's multiple versions of some plays. There's lots of language differences between them. We don't know if they came from actors or what. Uh, a lot of those official texts may be from memory or from whatever of those part scrolls remained. But we don't have any of those original scripts left, and we certainly don't have any of Shakespeare's plays in his own handwriting. So on some level, all of Shakespeare's language is hearsay. So that's some useful stuff from Shakespeare's lifetime. But here's the thing. That was a long time ago. And as important as those facts from the original life of the plays are, what's almost as important is all the lives they've lived since. Because that's how the plays come down to us. That's the lens through which we see them. We don't think about it that way, but it's impossible to just jump from 1616 to the present day as though the 400 years in between never happened. So why are we still doing these plays, right? It's not just because they're good, though that's certainly part of it. Let's look at what actually happened after Shakespeare died. So first, seven years after he died, some of his fellow Kingsmen collected his plays into a book that we know now as the First Folio. It's big, it's impressive, it's pretty expensive. Um, by the time it came out, a lot of his plays had kind of fallen out of the performance rotation. There's a chance he'll just kind of be another playwright. So whether it's because they want to make a quick buck or because they think these plays are special and they don't want them to be forgotten, these friends of Shakespeare's collect 36 of his plays into one collector's edition. And the strange effect of this is that what used to be a stage play, uh, spoken aloud and in character, becomes literature. There's a few hundred copies printed up. It hangs out in some people's libraries for a while. You know, it's one of their good books. But the plays themselves, performance-wise, have kind of fallen on hard times. And pretty soon, all plays have fallen on hard times. Because in the 1640s, these Protestant hardliners overthrow the King of England. And one of the first things they do is they shut down public entertainments because sin, I guess? Anyway, so the king who returns after all that nonsense in 1660 has been hanging out in Europe for most of his life, and he's come to love being entertained. So he licenses these new theaters to open up, and they start going looking for material, because there haven't been new playwrights in a few decades. And there's Shakespeare, just waiting to be revived. And his plays have been published in this beautiful collector's edition, so they're really easy to find. And new editions are starting to sell really well. And the theaters themselves are also very different from their predecessors. They're much more like the theaters we have today, actually. There's fewer seats, and they're more expensive. So whereas Shakespeare used to be kind of for everyone, he's starting to become much more the property of the upper classes who can afford the plays. And spectacle becomes much more important. These are indoor theaters with artificial light and awesome scenery, which is what they're doing in Europe, so the king brings it right over. And so even if Shakespeare's plays were intended for a bare stage, 
they kind of work awesome blown out big. So you've got fairies and battle scenes and magical islands. It's good material. And they even start rewriting Shakespeare's plays kind of willy-nilly. If you want King Lear to be less depressing, you just rewrite the end and everyone lives. You want Richard III to have cooler lines? Sure, write your own. Want to get rid of boring characters, add exciting ones? Go ahead. Shakespeare's dead. He don't care. And here's really the biggest single change from this time after Shakespeare. Remember all those parts that used to be played by boys? Well, all those noblemen who had been hanging out in Europe saw that it turns out that having women play women's parts is actually pretty awesome. So when they come back to England, they introduce this fabulous new creature to the stage, the actress. And the new king loved going to theater. He starts dating an actress. It's all very scandalous. And soon the whole court is hanging around theaters. In fact, the play starts to matter less and less. The point is being seen and seeing all the other cool kids. It's more of a social event than just entertainment. And so as we move into the 1700s, the plays themselves start to take a back seat to another element of theater, which is the star actor. And ultimately, that's why people start to go to see plays, to see their favorite celebrity. Now, the biggest celebrity at this time is this guy named David Garrick. And he makes his name with Shakespeare. That's how he breaks through. And he kind of randomly has a huge effect on what we think of Shakespeare today. So he's got this new sort of reeler style of acting. It's not just the screaming and making faces, which seemed to be the style before him. He starts performing texts that are a lot closer to the originals. He helps to sort of cement the tradition that Shakespeare's great parts are a proving ground for great actors. So you had to see someone's Richard III or King Lear to compare them with the other actors to know if they were truly great. And he's also really an important guy in the story because of this completely bonkers thing he does to celebrate uh, the 200th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. He goes over to Stratford, where Shakespeare's born, which is a pretty sleepy town at the time. And so he organizes fireworks and cannons and statues and musical numbers randomly and lectures and celebratory dinners. This is a guy who literally, and you can still go see this at his house, he literally built a temple to Shakespeare in his backyard. Um, he called Shakespeare, quote unquote, the god of our idolatry. He said that out loud. And now the 1800s are when things start to get really interesting. So Shakespeare is a an absolute fixture on stage. He's crowding out new playwrights. He's taking over whole seasons at certain theaters. You have a Shakespeare Memorial Theater built in Stratford. And he also starts to come into people's homes. So you had legions of editors publishing new editions of the plays. Each one is, you know, more correct than the next. This is more correct than the previous edition. Um, and you had scads of critics explaining to readers what Shakespeare meant from their own personal uh, unbreakable opinion, of course. Uh, so he became a literary figure. He became culture. Every home has copies of Shakespeare's works to be read often. And here's the other huge thing that starts to happen in the 1800s and that affects us even today. Shakespeare becomes school curriculum. Now, they're teaching rhetoric in schools, which is the study of persuasive public speaking. And so they pull out individual famous speeches from the plays out of context uh, to use them as models. And when they start developing the standardized tests to get into the great universities, well, they have to decide what to test everyone on. And since Shakespeare is the source of national pride in England, I think at least one of his plays is on every one of those tests for like decades and hundreds of years to come. And often these tests involve just memorizing long stretches from the plays. Sometimes they just used him to teach grammar, but the result is that it's hard to find a high school or college in the English speaking world today where Shakespeare isn't taught as curriculum. Now, by this time, 
it's spreading. Shakespeare's plays have gone well beyond England. He becomes a huge deal in Germany when the plays get translated there in the late 1700s. Um, and so productions and literary criticism blow up there because, as you know, Germans like to discuss things. Um, he catches on in a big way in Russia in the 1800s. He's still a quote-unquote great Russian playwright there. Uh, and right at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, Shakespeare randomly hooks Japan. So to this day, Shakespeare's studies are huge in Japan, and so is performance. Actually, some of my favorite film versions of Shakespeare's plays aren't in English at all. They're Russian and Japanese. But Shakespeare's biggest sort of foreign invasion, and the one that concerns us the most, is of America. And it makes sense. We speak English. It's an easy transfer. Uh, now, the major difference between England and America, of course, is that we are huge. Um, and so Shakespeare is mostly spread by travelers, you know, traveling acting companies, traveling lecturers, first coming from England itself, and then native companies and native lecturers, Americans. And they went from city to city, from small town to small town. So by the 1800s, the plays are starting to be performed more in America, actually, than in England. Because every decent-sized city has a theater for the touring companies to hit. And if there wasn't a theater somewhere, they just built a temporary stage or they just used a hotel or a church or something. So mining camps and backwoods towns, they got Shakespeare too. Sometimes he was just kind of part of a bill with jugglers and animal acts and singers. He also became, you know, kind of required reading. So if a log cabin had only two books, chances are they were A, the Bible, and B, selections from Shakespeare. This is how Lincoln first read the plays. He became a big fan. He studied them the rest of his life because he had grown up with them. And, and Shakespeare had just about returned to where he started in England in the days when it was being written. He became popular culture in America. Parody versions are everywhere. This is when you know something's really seeped into the culture, when it's getting parodied. If you've read Huckleberry Finn, you know Mark Twain parodies Shakespeare. But by the late 1800s, Shakespeare's place in the culture is starting to change slowly. He's starting to become high culture, you know, a deity, the property of the educated and the upper class. And what happened was that vaudeville split off from the legitimate theater. So you had important stuff over here and not important stuff over there. So you're not finding Shakespeare and dancing bears on the same bill like you used to. And societies grow up to protect his works. And starting in the 1930s, we also start to develop this tradition of Shakespeare festivals and Shakespeare-only theaters, sort of along the lines of the Stratford model in England. You have people like Joe Papp in the 50s and 60s who try to reverse that trend with things like Shakespeare in the Park and Free Shakespeare and other sort of populist movements to bring him back down. But the damage is kind of done. Shakespeare's plays, by that time, it started to feel like they belong to one part of society only. Anyway, so that is the wild oversimplification of the history as I understand it. And the result is 400 years of strong opinions about a few old plays. And to be honest, that much history and that many opinions can be paralyzing. One of my favorite poets, this guy John Milton, um, has this wonderful line about how Shakespeare, quote-unquote, makes us marble with too much conceiving. In other words, he makes us think ourselves about him into stone. We all literally become his monument. So these, these orthodoxies grow up. And then the different sides have kind of religious wars about them. You know, we have them on the scholar's side you know, which word and punctuation Shakespeare really wrote, uh, the nature of Hamlet's melancholy, the nature of Lear's madness. We have them on the performance side, which is the question of, like, whether the sound of the line is more important. You know, should you pause only at the end of a verse? Should you underline all the poetic devices? Or whether the sense of the line is more important? You know, should you explain the meaning as you go? Uh, we have them on the audience side. You know, does Shakespeare need an English accent in period costumes? We have them on the cultural side. Should everyone read Shakespeare? What nation does he belong to? 
And then there are arguments between the sides, like whether the plays are just for reading or just for performing. There was this kind of awesome scholar in England in the 19th century named William Hazlitt who said the immortal line, we do not like to see our author's plays acted. What other writer would we have these arguments about? It's enough to drive you crazy. It's like we're fighting over the scraps. Where are the plays underneath all of this? Me, I think that's a lot of distraction. It's an excuse to forget why we started reading and watching these plays in the first place, because they're works of art that mirror some real part of ourselves back to us. And these distractions, this chatter, it's one of the barriers to connecting with Shakespeare's writing today. There's a cultural imposition on them. It's not something that has much to do with what he originally wrote. But, you know, another barrier just comes from the fact that he wrote it 400 years ago. You know, language changes. There's no way around it. First, there's the pronouns. And to me, this is the first level of major language change that's happened in those 400 years. Those thous and these, you all know them. It makes everything sound fake. The fact is, those words went out of the language not really all that long after Shakespeare, and then they were gone. And what's even worse is that when we hear them, we misunderstand them in a big way. So, here it is. Thou is just another form of you. They're really the same word. You just say them with a different beginning sound. You, thou, which is actually probably how it would have been pronounced. Um, but because of the association with Shakespeare and with the King James Bible translation, we tend to think of the word thou as formal, as a pretentious way of speaking, when actually it's the complete opposite. So, you know how most languages in the world, except English, have an informal pronoun and a formal pronoun, like in Spanish, tu and usted, or in German, du and z. Notice, by the way, how much thou sounds like those first ones, like tu and du. That's because it's something you say to your equals, to your friends. It's informal. The only time you use you is when you're speaking to higher class people, or sometimes when you're talking to groups of people. It's formal. You say thou hast to your buddy. You say you have to the king. And I guess you say du hast to Rammstein, which would also be the informal usage, which is why it sounds so much like thou hast, but I digress. And this might be the, the biggest misconception I know about Shakespeare's language. You know, there's this slightly crazy brother and sister team named the, the Bowdlers in the 1800s who published a book called The Family Shakespeare, where they just cut out anything that could possibly be offensive, any hint of sex or violence. That's where we get the term Bowdlerizing. Anyway, I'm not usually in favor of messing with Shakespeare's language too much, but the one thing I'd definitely think about doing is changing all the pronouns in Shakespeare and some of the verbs that go along with them, those endings. Uh, you can call it foxifying if you want. Uh, just replace all the thou hasts with you have, etc., etc. You know, because of the passage of time, it's just this grammatical quirk that no longer communicates what it was intended to communicate. And so our guard immediately goes up. Change it. Change it in the books. Change it in the performances. I think it helps more than it hurts. But that's me. And then there are all those other words, the words that make Shakespeare Shakespeare. Well, look, the meanings of some of those words have just changed. Take the word happy, for example. We know what it means to us. It means joyful. But in Shakespeare's time, it meant lucky or fortunate. And there are dozens of words like that, where what's communicated is different than what he originally intended. Now, he monkeys around with unusual words and a complex word order in ways that probably would have challenged his original audience, too. But... There's also words that have just plain fallen out of the language in 400 years. And so instead of hearing lots of specifically chosen words, which is the essence of great writing, you hear a series of blanks. And that's a real issue and not the easiest one to solve. I know plenty of directors who just change the words in their productions. It's heresy, I know, but they do it to communicate. 
And the result of this is that people go to read or see these plays, and they very often have no idea what anyone is saying. But, you know, they've been told their whole lives how important and how great the plays are. So because they don't want to seem dumb, they nod and they laugh and they clap dutifully and they go home and they feel unfulfilled by what they read or watched. Who wants to feel that? It's actually been the same on the inside, too. Productions I've worked on and seen. You know, one approach I see actors take a lot is basically to sing the language, as though just the poetic recitation technique will carry you through. But then you have a poetry recital, not a play. Or you have actors who are basically trying to explain the language. But then the intention of the character becomes to explain my words instead of the action of the scene. You know, to convince a friend that his wife is cheating on him or whatever. And that's dead in the water, too. I mean, I've actually seen actors say the words out of order, such that what they're saying is nonsense. I've seen actors play a whole 30-line speech with one single emotion throughout, or with that emotion known as loud. Um, It's as general as can be, and it's just in the hope that nobody will notice they're not really in the scene. I've seen actors who try to mumble their way through Shakespeare as if getting realistic will impress people. But, you know, real people don't talk in perfect blank verse. What makes acting Shakespeare such a hard needle to thread is that the performance has to be big enough to match the size of the language, but small enough to be human. You know, audiences aren't looking for realistic, they're looking for real. And Shakespeare is blisteringly real, but he's totally unrealistic. You know, the best performances I've seen have really towed that line. They have a scale, but they're as word-specific and fresh and inventive as the language is. But to be honest, I haven't seen that many great performances. The same problems that audiences and readers have, actors and directors have too. You know, trying to pretend like we all get Shakespeare, and so all we have to do is say the words right. You know, if they acted other playwrights the way they act Shakespeare, we'd laugh. Where are the strong choices? Where are the intentions? Where are the full characters? Instead, they're playing an idea of Shakespeare, this fakey dignity and pseudo-Britishness and old-timiness. Somehow we get away with skipping steps with Shakespeare because no one is going to call us on it. Shakespeare is everywhere. So why do we still read him in schools? Why do we still produce him in theaters? Well, at least part of it is that we always have, although now you know, it only seems like we always have, but we want to feel cultured and correct. Shakespeare's probably way overproduced in this country, but the fact is people show up and buy tickets when you produce a Shakespeare play. They've heard of it. They feel like they should go see it. Now, it doesn't hurt either that it's free to produce because Shakespeare doesn't get royalty checks after all. The production doesn't even have to be any good. What's the incentive to make a production great if the fact that it's Shakespeare will get people to show up regardless? And the result of all this is that Shakespeare becomes a genre instead of a writer. You know what? Let's be honest. Let's be honest that we're not producing these plays so much out of a great universal love and understanding of the guy. Let's try that honesty. And I think only then can we start actually engaging his work at the language level, the level at which he wrote it. I know this all sounds like a huge downer, but I really do love the stuff. I want to brush as many of those preconceived notions away as I can to get you closer. I feel for the guy, even though he's dead and couldn't care less that I feel for him. I imagine this thought experiment. Suppose it's, I don't know, 1614. And Shakespeare's retired in Stratford-on-Avon, maybe he's doing a little gardening or whatever, and his shovel hits a magical glowing stone that transports him to the present day. Glowing stone? Is that how we do time travel now? I never remember. Anyway, Shakespeare emerges from the time tunnel into Times Square, which is where time travelers always seem to arrive, and he looks up at all the crazy buildings, stumbles into traffic, runs in fear, etc., etc., 
And once he calms down, he starts wandering around the theater district. And Jesus, like three of his plays are running. There's Twelfth Night and Hamlet and Richard III. Awesome. All that stuff in the sonnets about his verse living on after him, it's come true. But the productions are maybe set on the moon for some reason. And there's tons of weirdo scenery. And the actors all have strange accents. And then he goes to the library to do some research on the last 400 years. And there's 25,000 books written just about him. Good God. And then he wanders into the park, and there's a garden just made up of plants from his plays. What? And he wanders into a school, and every class is reading his plays. And people on the street are using his phrases in everyday conversation. What the hell happened? He just wrote some plays. They were pretty good. He made some money. He went home. He did some yard work. How did he become an institution? The institution. Man, imagine a writer from today having this experience. That a few things you wrote became the greatest works ever written. Imagine Herman Melville, who died in almost total anonymity, waking up to learn he'd written the great American novel. It would make it hard to deal. Your work would have become so classic, so divorced from the original intentions. It would be like becoming a saint. You'd almost feel sorry for your words. They couldn't be read as words anymore. They'd become something like scripture. I think every writer should get the chance to be read fresh, no matter how famous a few accidents of history made him or her. Because underneath all this stuff, Shakespeare really is a hell of a writer. That's why I'm doing this podcast, to get closer to those original words. Because I got hooked young. I was 15. My high school was doing a production of Hamlet, and I thought I'd audition. So I got out my complete works that my aunt had bought me a few years before. I hadn't opened it yet. Uh, And I turned to the page that said Hamlet, and I started reading And then I came up for air three hours later, and I thought, God, does anybody know about this? It turned out that everybody knew about it. Uh, It was the single most famous work of literature in the English language. But what I mean is, it hit me personally. I wanted everybody to read it and love what I loved about it. You know, how smart-alecky and dickish Hamlet was. um, How real his depression was. How much it sounded like mine. How scary and bizarre the ghost was. And above all else, that language, which was twisty and dense and always, always, always surprising and right. Because that's what great writers do. They use words to kind of slap you around and wake you up. You expected this, you're getting something else, and you'll like it. And that's what Hamlet did for me. I mean, I guess I had heard of it. I had probably heard of To Be or Not To Be, and I had seen some pictures of serious dudes in black holding skulls. But this wasn't what I had expected at all. This is someone from 400 years ago understanding something fundamental about me. It, It was time travel. And it's really that feeling of being a 15-year-old and reading Shakespeare for the first time on my own that I've been chasing ever since. Because since then, all that cultural detritus I've been talking about has been like this huge wave that grabbed that book out of my hands and took it far away. And I want that first feeling back. And what I've found over the years is there's no tricks to get there. Doctrine or technique, they're not going to get you there. Religious rituals or professions of faith, they're not going to get you there. The only way to get there is to open the book, look those words right in their dirty little faces, and read. So that's what I want Clear Shakespeare to do. Let's go.